Thank you, Brother Dan. We are uh, looking at the topic of the condescension of Christ, and we will uh, define that in a moment uh, because it's one of those big words, and it's not that I think most of you know what it is, but to give a formal definition may be a little bit difficult, but we'll do that in a moment. But before we do, <clears throat> let's pick our text up again tonight in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read verse 7 and 8. Anybody got that? Want to read it? Okay, now again, uh, we kind of picked up there in the middle of the uh, chapter here in chapter 2. Who is Paul writing about here? Anybody know? About Jesus Christ. Now, we're looking tonight at the condescension of Christ. And I don't know why I have trouble pronouncing that word, but I do. Um, the Bible, these are certainly theological terms. And we often speak of the condescension of Christ and also the humiliation of Christ. Very similar, but yet they are separate and distinct, although they happen at the same time. Uh, condescension is simply, uh, according to the dictionary, a voluntary assumption of equality with a person regarded as inferior. Now, uh, the reason I got that from dictionary, I didn't, I wouldn't be able to define that word, okay? So again, let me repeat that. It's a voluntary assumption of equality with a person regarded as inferior. So my question is, did Jesus do that? Yes. That's exactly what it is. That's a good way to put it. It's a stepping down. Now, was he forced to do that? No. He did it voluntarily. So that is a, a sort of a brief definition of the condescension of Christ. Now, humiliation, again, I looked that one up to make sure I could understand the difference. And the dictionary definition is reducing someone to a lower position in one's own eyes or others' eyes to make uh, someone ashamed or embarrassed. Now, I do want to say uh, Christ did voluntarily step down, become equal with us. He was not ashamed of that. He was not embarrassed with that, but what did people try to make him? Feel ashamed and feel embarrassed. You know, if you are who you say you are, do this or do that. So that is humiliation. And so when we think of the humiliation of Christ, we're speaking about uh, the rejection and suffering that Jesus received. But to me, the marvelous thing, not only did he receive it, he accepted it. Now, again, let me remind you, when they spit in his face, what did he do to them? No, he let them do it, right? So he accepted it. Now, again, I want to ask this question, rhetorical, I suppose. Did he have to accept it? No, he had the power. He could have done anything he wanted to. So that's his humiliation. Now, it's interesting, and, and Dan, thanks for reading verses 7 and 8, but we kind of see this, a little bit of the difference between the condescension of Christ and the humiliation. Uh, First of all, it says there in verse 7, he made himself no reputation. That's the condescension, okay? He stepped down voluntarily to become equal with a lower form, and that's man. 
He became man. Now, again, I know we keep kind of emphasizing that it's important. Was Christ fully human? Yes. Was he fully God? Yes. He was always God. But now he became flesh and he dwelt among us. That's the condescension. But also, humiliation. He humbled himself. And certainly he did that for us. So when we talk about the condescension of God, the Son, uh, it, it, it involves his assuming our nature. And, of course, John said in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, the Word became flesh. Now, I hope you never get over that. To me, that's amazing. And, by the way, who's the Word? Jesus, God, okay. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. Now, please understand, that was human nature. He took on human nature. And so please understand, he still retained his glory in exaltation. His glory was veiled by human flesh. His glory didn't diminish. It simply wasn't visible like it could have been. We know what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was when the glory of Christ was revealed uh, to some of the disciples. Now, it's interesting. We think about God the Son, the fact that He took on uh, union with uh, us, our our nature, uh, was certainly an act of infinite condescension. He just was willing to do that. Now, let's back up. We'll be camping here tonight again. Let's go ahead and read again. Let's pick it up in verse 6 tonight, all the way down to verse 9. Anybody want to read that? Okay, now again, we mentioned this last week, and these few verses that Paul is writing about, now remember, uh, these are things that God had revealed to him through the Holy Spirit, uh, but these verses literally give us the path that the mediator uh, took. He left the highest glory. Wouldn't you say that? He came from heaven, but he also came to the the lowest humiliation. He became man, okay? And even so far as dying the death of the cross. But also, God has exalted him back to supreme honor. Now, we won't take time to read it tonight, but John 17, uh, the prayer that Jesus prays, uh, is a good example of that. Uh, He simply says to the Father in so many words, I have finished my work. I am ready now to return to where I came from. So he condescended. He came down. he 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 stepped down. Okay? Humiliated by the death of the cross, and God has now exalted him. Where's, where's Christ at now? On the right hand of the Father, back to glory. <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah, you said he must be relieved to go back. I can't imagine. But I also can't imagine the love he had for us to do what he did. And, you know, I, I'm always reminded he didn't do it for himself. 
He did it for us. He did it all for us. Thank God. And you know, the good thing is, uh, when will he do that again? Never. Why? Once for all. Amen. The price has been paid. And on the cross, some of his last words were, it is finished. God's plan of salvation is finished. A, a, a statement of triumph. A statement of, uh, of victory. Now, we're not going to read the first uh, five verses. We did that last week. But what you have there is a context of verse 6 through 9. And, and basically, Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, hey, you know what, folks? We need to learn to get along. You know, we're in the body of Christ. We're in fellowship together. And we need to learn to uh, to get along. And so Paul said, look, uh, if we're going to have that good, pure Christian fellowship among ourselves, we have to think like Christ thought. We need to love one another the way Christ loved us. And we need to be humble, uh, as humble as Christ was, and certainly look on others better than ourselves. So that's the context that Paul's giving here. Now, again, uh, you know, Paul is saying, hey, let me show you how to flesh this out. And what example does he give? He gives Jesus Christ. And I think you'll agree there is no better example to demonstrate how that should be lived out every day in our lives. So Paul said, let this mind which was in Christ be also in you. Uh, the same spirit, the same habit, uh, the same self-denial, the same self-sacrifice, doing it all out of obedience to God, fulfilling the will of God. Paul said, let Jesus be our example. So if we are going to ever be exalted by God, we first must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. By the way, Peter uh, writes about that as well. So again, uh, he shows us supreme dignity and glory was his. He had it from the beginning, everlasting, everlasting. He reminds us of the depths that he stepped down. He condescended, if you will, and the humiliation which he took on, and he did it for our sake, not for our own. And what I want to do tonight, we began doing it last week, but I want to kind of break those uh, verses uh, six through nine down, and kind of examine the phrases that Paul uh, uses there. Uh, the first one, and we talked about it in detail last week, so we'll just highlight. Paul says, speaking about Christ, who being in the form of God. Now, let me clarify. Uh, Paul's not saying he's almost like God. He's saying what? He is God. He's just like God. So again, Paul says he subsists in the form of God. He exists in the form of God. Uh, he's the image, Paul said in Colossians, of the invisible God. And Philippians, I'm sorry, Hebrews said in chapter 1, he's the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person. So he is in the form of God. He's identical with God. The second phrase, and we talked about this last week, so we'll just kind of highlight it again. Uh, Paul says, he thought it not robber, there in verse 6, to be equal with God. Now, I mentioned this last week. There are two uh, basic thoughts in these words. Number one, uh, Jesus didn't consider uh, the equality with God as something that he had to hold on to. He didn't grasp tightly on it. And some uh, English translations translate that verse that way. And that's okay. But the second thing is, Christ didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. Now, remember... Remember, especially in John chapter 8 is one example that comes to my mind. Uh, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. 
And the Jews said, we're going to stone him. Because in their eyes, if you claim to be the Son of God, you're claiming what? To be God. Amen? To be equal with God. So, please understand that. So, you know, he was God. He didn't consider something he couldn't, he couldn't let go of if he needed to. And he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. Now, it's interesting. Now, think about this. Let me ask you again, how many gods are there? Just one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And as Christ considered what he, who he was, uh, he didn't see it as an evasion to God's prerogative. But he regarded, he saw himself as entitled to all the divine honors of God. And the reason is because he is God, okay? He was simply God in the flesh. So we talk about this over and over again. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are co-eternal. They are co-equal. And so co-glorious, if you will. And Jesus says, I belong there. That is part of who I am. That is the essence of who I am. So, again, nothing wrong with claiming perfect uh, perfection with the Father. Not at all. He is the Son of God. Now, we're not going to read it again tonight, but we talked about it last week. You remember Satan tried to be there? He tried to exalt himself. He wanted to be like God. And what did that lead to? Yeah, he got thrown out of heaven. It led to his fall. In fact, the Bible says he was the anointed cherub. Uh, and I don't know all about that, but evidently he was a very high-ranking angelic figure. And he thought he was somebody. In fact, he... Say it again. Yeah, absolutely, he was the most beautiful one of them all. And he thought, well, here I am, so I can be God. But you know what? Even the anointed cherub was far below God. And it caused his downfall. Now, it's interesting. He was infinitely below God, Satan was. And yet he was grasping at that equality. He wanted that Equality. Now, understand something, folks. Jesus didn't have to reach for it. Why? Hey, who said that? Yeah, he's already got it. He already has it. How long has he had that? Forever and ever. And he will have it forever and ever. Another phrase there in verse 7 says, he, But he made himself of no reputation. And, of course, The following verses sort of explain that for us. Uh, But the bottom line was this. If anybody had a right to be treated fairly, who had that right? Jesus did. And yet we look at his life, and Paul talks a bit about that. He lived his life determined not to insist on the personal rights he had being a member of the Trinity. The triune God. He voluntarily relinquished his rights. Now, does that mean he stopped being God? No, not at all. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, he willingly set that thing aside. Those things that separate the Creator. And he set those 
magnificent rights aside, to appear in a form of a creature, even in the likeness of man. Now think about that. He relinquished his position of supremacy, and he entered one of servanthood. He became a servant. You remember, I know you do, the time in John 13, they had gathered for the Last Supper, and Jesus took a, uh, a towel and girded himself in a, in a basin of water, and what did he begin to do? Yeah, what kind of reaction was there? Yeah, actually it was Peter who said he didn't like it, but, but, I, but basically none of them would like it. Because they're thinking what? He's, at, you know, he's, he's high above them, but he, he took the form of a servant. Now here's what's interesting. Who has greater majesty, God the Son or God the Father? All equal. Say, well, you should say God the Holy Spirit too, okay? They're all equal. And even though he was equal in majesty with God, equal in glory with God in majesty, he willingly, he joyfully resigned himself to the will of the Father. And Paul said, being obedient even to the death of the cross. John chapter 6, verse 38. Anybody got that verse? Thank you, Alan. Now, notice the phrase, I came down. Condescending. He stepped down. He stepped down to become man. But did he come to do his own will? No, but the will of the Father who sent me. I mean... His condescension is incomparable. This one who was inherit, who had the inherent right in the form of God, he allowed his glory to be eclipsed, if you will. He had, he allowed his honor, if you will, to be sort of laid in the dust. And Paul says he humbled himself, and we know that he did, to be, uh, by the, to meet the most shameful death mankind could offer. Because the Bible says if you're hung on the cross, you're what? You're cursed. He became a curse for us. So he made himself of no reputation. Another phrase in verse 7 says he took on him the form of a servant. Now again, I need to ask this question. When Jesus took on the form of a servant, did he stop being God? No, he was still God. The only change at that point when he condescended from heaven, the only change was he assumed something he had not been previously. He was not a man until he stepped down out of heaven. Still God, that didn't change. The only thing that changed, he became something he had never been before that time. God became flesh. What a, what a marvelous miracle that is. What a marvelous truth that is. God became flesh. Now also keep in mind, that being said, there was absolutely no change at all in his divine nature. That did not change. But the change was God united his divine nature with the human nature. Now again, I want to ask this. 
Was he more God or more man? It was equal. 100% God, 100% man. One ancient theologian, John Owen, I think he was a Puritan uh, theologian. Here's what he said. He who is God, hear me well, he who is God can no more be not God than he who is not God can be God. Isn't that good? He who is God can no more be not God than he who is not God can be God. So I think what he's telling us, since Christ was God, can he stop being God? No. And he said it would be absurd that one who is not God, thinking they can become a God. We cannot, in spite, in, in spite of what some of these uh, charismatic preachers are preaching on television and radio. We are not little gods, okay? We are not little gods. There's only one God, and I don't care who you are or me, we're not him, okay? He could not stop being God. Now, also understand, and it took me a while to get a hold of this, and, and, and by the way, don't you think for a minute, I got, my, I got all, the, all the T's crossed and the, and the I's dotted, because I don't. But I, I, just, I didn't understand, but the bottom line is this, when Jesus stepped down, he did not surrender any of his divine attributes. Now, how do I know that's true? If he did, he stopped being God. And if you, you can't stop being God. If you are God, and he is God. So again, we have to understand his divine attributes are inseparable from who he is. And he is God. Say it again. Yes. Now, here's what's interesting, folks. It is true that his majestic glory was, at least for a season, obscured by the interposing veil of human flesh. Now, I didn't put this verse in our notes tonight. It just came to my mind. You ever hear of the guy, uh, the apostle named John? Uh, when you think about the apostles, they were 12. Uh, what would you say about John? You can't all talk at one time. Was he one of the least known apostles? No. He would have been a part of the inner circle. Uh, identified in his own gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, John never identifies himself personally, but as the one whom Jesus loved. Would you agree he spent a lot of time with Jesus? Yeah. Back to the Last Supper, he was on one side of the breast of Jesus. That was a, a place of honor, being seated there. And so he had spent a lot of time with Jesus. And you get to uh, Revelation, and uh, John's there on the Isle of Patmos, and God gives him a vision. And uh, he has a vision of Christ. What does John do? What's his reaction? John said, I fell at his feet as dead. I suggest to you that John saw him that day in a way he had never seen him before. I suggest to you that even what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration didn't compare to what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. He was overwhelmed. (laughs) And it's interesting 
for three and a half years, off of 33 and a half years or thereabouts, his glory was obscured by the veil of human flesh. But not now. Not now. John 1, 14, look what it says. Thank you, Dan. If you were here Sunday morning for Sunday school, we had a tremendous lesson. Uh, not because I was teaching it, but we're looking at the uh, fact that God's Word is God's Word. And one of the uh, points, the key truths, uh, one of the verses we took was in, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where Luke talks about uh, who was living during the time of the birth of Christ, some of the rulers and leaders. And Jeremy and I were talking tonight before Bible study, uh, and both would agree when we first saw uh, the reference, we thought, what in the world has that got to do with the uh, uh, validity of the Scriptures? Well, the whole point was uh, of, our, of our study guide was to show us that Jesus was born not in a vacuum, but among people who lived, people who historians can identify were alive at that time, and some Roman historians have already done that through the years. But the point is this, even John here in chapter 1, 14 of, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, he dwelt among us, meaning what? He was right here. We watched him. We watched him. Would you agree they ate with him? I believe they slept. I don't mean in the same bed, but they slept together. They ministered together. All these things. And there were others as well involved that followed him throughout his ministry for three and a half years. He was here. But the thing that really always gets my attention, I even underlined it in my verse tonight. John said, we beheld his glory. Wow. Now, when the Bible speaks of God's glory, even here in John 1.14, the Bible often calls it the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. Because Shekinah, the word Shekinah, denotes in the tent. Glory in the tent. So wait a minute. John said we beheld his glory. What tent was that glory in? In the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we beheld Shekinah glory. Glory in the tent. And so when John refers to the glory of Christ, he's speaking about his divine greatness and his shining moral splendor. And I don't know for sure, but I believe that probably the greatest example of what John was thinking about when he penned these words was that day on the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> now think about this. John and two of the disciples were there, and right before their very eyes, what happened? He was transformed. He was transfigured. And all of a sudden, beneath 
Jesus' appearance as an ordinary Jewish carpenter. The disciples saw the indwelling glory of God. I don't know how long it lasted. We're not told. But for a period of time, the tent was moved aside. And they saw the indwelling glory of God. Hold on. So it just came at that point? No. It was always there. It was just veiled by the tent. Glory in the tent. Now, by the way, if you lived in Israel in the first century and you saw Jesus walking down the street and you had no idea who he was, what would you think? It's another Jewish man. Woman at the well, John 4, when she first saw him, she recognized him as a Jewish man. As the conversation moved on, she realized he must have been a rabbi. Then she found out, best of all, he's not just a man. He's not just a rabbi. He's a savior. But understand, to those, to most, he was nobody special. But to the inner circle that day, he was a unique son of God filled with the glory of God. And John said, we beheld his glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think John ever forgot that. Do you? I don't know if he ever did. Isaiah 53 says something about that, verse 2. Wow. <clears throat> so when you see when you saw him walking on the street, <clears throat> he had a halo around his head. He walked off the ground about six inches. Is that what it was? No. Isaiah prophesied he won't look any different. There'll be nothing about his appearance that will attract you to him. First Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. Verse Don't you love that verse? Do you see the journey here? Do you see that? Now, again, this is the mystery of godliness. And the first thing Paul says, God was manifest in the flesh. And that's our focus tonight. What does that mean? Yeah, God showed himself in the flesh. Now, here's what's interesting. All of us have said nobody has seen God. That was true until when? Until Jesus came. He told Philip, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So it was God himself who was manifest in the flesh. And so when John wrote his gospel, the word became flesh. What John is saying, it was God who became flesh. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6.
Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then we see a description. Who's the only one that fits the bill? Jesus Christ. He, he is God in the flesh. Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 11. Thank you. Now, don't miss this, folks. The very one born in Bethlehem's manger. He was a mighty God. And they proclaimed him as Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Now, make sure we understand this. and We can't be uncertain about this. Christ had been emptied of any... Uh, if he had been emptied of any of his personal ecstasy, if any of his divine attributes had been laid aside, his sacrifice would have never satisfied God. And because his sacrifice satisfied God, because of the resurrection, we know it satisfied God, because he is and was God. So when we think about the glory of his person, God in the flesh. It was not diminished in any degree at all when it became flesh. However, it was, at least in part, concealed by the lowly form of a servant that he took on. He became a servant. Uh, one uh, story just came to my mind. Do you remember the time? I know you do. Uh, Jesus in the boat with the disciples. He's down underneath taking a nap. And a storm comes up. What do they do? They wake him up. What's he do? He speaks, peace be still. Now, here's what's interesting. Why was he sleeping? Said he, oh, thank you. Exactly. That's what I'm looking for. He was human. How many know that God's in a good nap? Amen? Uh, you know, uh, I texted Dan today. I said, Dan, is this Wednesday? And uh, he told me a while ago, I was right in the middle of his nap. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, Christ was sleeping because he was human. Yeah, he was tired. They wake him up, and he was able to speak to that storm and calm it because he was who? He was God. He was God. What a Savior. What a Savior. So it wouldn't diminish his divinity. It was concealed for a while. But even that being said, Christ was still equal with God when he condescended and stepped down to earth. First Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 8. What's Paul saying there? And this is an amazing statement. They wouldn't have done it. They simply didn't know. But more, you know, our point tonight is, Paul says they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, don't miss that. He was the man God. And it was the Lord of glory 
whom men had crucified. And Paul said if they only knew, if they had only knew. So Paul said he took on himself a form of a servant. <laughs> and it's interesting, that is such a step down. I'm not sure that you and I could possibly fully grasp how far he actually stepped down. How it must have been difficult. Uh, there's long, whatever, I'm having you want to put it, how far he stepped down. Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6. Okay, thank you. I, uh, I wanted verse 5 as well as verse 6, even though verse 5 is what we're going to be looking at in a moment. But the question in verse 5 is, Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwells on high? Say it again. None. You look everywhere, above heaven, below heaven, in heaven, under the earth. There's no other like God. And then the psalm was said in verse 6, This God has to humble himself even to look at the things that are in heaven and in earth. Think about that. So my question is, I guess the statement I want to make, statement I want to make, if God humbles himself just to be able to look at the things that are in heaven, if he humbles himself just to be able to look at things on the earth, how much more did he actually humble himself to become flesh and dwell among us? So I, again, I want to ask you, what is God higher than? What about the angels? What about the cherubim? Everything. He's higher than everything. And yet he stepped out of glory. And he dwells among the most lowly. John 14, verse 28. Okay. Uh, we, we dealt with that, I think, a little bit last week or the week before. Um, not in divinity, uh, but certainly in essence, when Christ came to this world, he humbled himself to be obedient to what God wanted. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Okay, there again, the head of Christ is God. Hebrews 2, verse 7. Okay, just, just make sure you uh, that I did do some studying on this. Now, this particular verse is not talking particularly about Christ. It's talking about what God has done for man. God has made us just a little bit lower than the angels. God has crowned us with glory and honor. And he set us to be guardians of his works. 
So how does it apply to Christ? Christ became what? A man, okay? He became man. So when we think about Jesus saying, the Father is greater than I, when Paul wrote that the head of Christ is God, and because Christ became a man, men are a little older than the angels, he assumed that position. And so when all of this took place, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, stepped into an office that for a period of time placed him below God. He became a man, so he was for a while a little lower than the angels. Galatians 4.4. 4. Now, our focus in this particular verse is the last part of verse 4, where Paul wrote, he was made under the law. Made of a woman, of course. He was uh, a man, if you will. So, without a doubt, Jesus was human. He was God, but he was human. And because he was human, he voluntarily subjected himself to the structure of the universe that he created. Think about that. He voluntarily subjected to the universe that had been marred by sin. He came into our world. But I think the most important thing we look at tonight about this, not only did he do all of that, the Bible says he lived life as a Jew. And because he lived like a Jew, he subjected himself to God's revealed law. That's our Savior. Now, we know that no other human being has ever been able to perfectly fulfill God's law. But what did Jesus do? He did it completely. And because of that, and only because of that, because he was God in the flesh, Jesus could then be the perfect sacrifice. Because even though he was fully human, he never sinned. And his death on Calvary brought freedom for us who were enslaved to sin. And he offered the redemption, if you will, the adoption into the family of God. Now remember, we were slaves to sin. Jesus delivered it from that when he died for us. Because he was God and he was man. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. Are you in Psalm 22, verse 6 and 8? Now, again, in the context of this psalm, it's a psalm of David, and David is sharing his lot in life at a particular time. But do you recognize the last part of verse 7 when it said, They laughed me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shook their heads, saying, He trusted the Lord, 
that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Have you heard it before somewhere else? That's exactly what they said to Jesus when he was on the cross. So he was made a little lower than even the ordinary condition of man because he was, without a doubt, a reproach of men and he was despised by the people. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. So all of these things we looked at tonight, the point of it is to let this mind be in us to think the way that Jesus Christ thought. And so as Paul was addressing the church at Philippi originally and us tonight, If you wonder, Paul, what are you talking about? What, what, what are you trying to tell us when you're asking us to live our lives in humility? What do you mean, Paul, when you're telling us to look to others' concerns before we look to our own? So what does Paul do? He makes it clear. Let me give you an example. Look to Jesus. So Paul says, hey, if you're a believer, adopt that same attitude Jesus had. Adopt that same frame of mind that our Lord had. And it's interesting, you've heard me say it before, the church is not this building. Who's the church? We are, people. And each believer... As individuals, we are part of the whole. And if that's going to work to have the same attitude, we have to do that individually. So that the the entire church is characterized by humility. Now, if you've ever said this, don't say it again. And whatever you do, don't say it in front of me, because I'll call your hand at it. And maybe I'll say it. If you hear me say it, call my hand at it. A lot of people will say, you know what? I just can't control my mood. I can't control my attitude. What do you think Paul would say about that? He, he'd use the most famous Greek word I know of, Hogwash. He would accept it. He would accept it. Because Paul would remind us, we've been born again. We have the Spirit of God living in us. And Paul would never, ever accept the fact that Spirit-filled Christians are slaves to their own attitudes. So Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not buying that. Have the attitude Christ had. Romans 8, 5. What a great principle. Paul said, hey, look, if you're living after the flesh, you're thinking about things of the flesh. It's always on your mind. 
But he said, if you're living after the Spirit, you're concentrating, you're thinking about, you're dwelling on the things of the Spirit. And I agree with one theologian who said this. One of the great myths of popular psychology that has drifted into the church today deals with the impulsive behavior based on emotions. In an attempt to get in touch with our feelings, this myth advocates that we must do what our feelings indicate. How many know that's a lie of the devil? How many know you can't trust your feelings? You can't rely upon them. But here's what's interesting. Because we are spirit-filled, because we are children of God, we are able to be in touch with our feelings, but still do what Christ requires us to do. Lord, I know how I feel, but get me beyond that. I want to be obedient to you. So anyone who accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, we don't live on an island by ourselves. We enter a community of believers we call the church. And as believers, we're to obey our Savior because of who He is and because of what He has done for us. And Paul says, you know what? You can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what do I need? What do you need? With all of our hearts as Christians, Lord, give us grace to accept the place you have given us in your family. Even if you assign me the lowest place, help me to be ready to do your will. That's the attitude Jesus had. Let's stop there for tonight.